Thank you. Good morning. We're in Joshua chapter 5, if you want to go ahead and turn that way. We're going to take three weeks to finish Joshua chapter 5, and then we're going to move along. So I hope you've enjoyed this series so far. Hey, I'm supposed to announce that... Um, for you guys not to forget that on October 3rd, that'll be the Sunday that we launch our orphan care ministry, um, helping, um, in the realm of foster care and adoption. We obviously, you guys know me, I was obviously excited about, um, the Texas case, uh, as it pertains to abortion and abortion being limited. And we're praying that it's totally eradicated. Um, it needs to be totally eradicated. It's a reproach on our nation. So at the same time that we need to be vocal and advocating for life, um, we're also going to be a body that cares for, um, the orphan and those that are struggling. And so I want to encourage you to be a part of that. October 3rd, there'll be a luncheon right after service. Um, uh, interest luncheon, if you're interested in, um, partnering either by fostering you and your family fostering or by supporting families who are again, that'll be October 3rd. All right, let's pray over the word. So father in Jesus name, we come to your word with, with hunger expectancy. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would shape us, that you would nourish our souls from this word. Lord, I ask that this time would be a time when our hearts are totally devoted to you. I ask that this time in Jesus' name would be a time, Holy Spirit, where you come and kindle the flame of our heart. Let our desires be stirred up, our affections be breathed upon as we study your word to love you and to love you alone with all of our our passion. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Well, there's a story of D.L. Moody in his younger years. Remember, D.L. Moody was the great evangelist at the turn of the 20th century. It said that there was a wife of a judge, a kind of prestigious intellectual judge. She was a believer, but the husband, the judge, was not a believer, and she had been praying for her husband. And she met D.L. Moody, this evangelist, this young, fiery evangelist, and she says, you need to go and meet with my husband and try to share the gospel with him and win him to the Lord. And D.L. Moody says, no. She, he says, um, essentially, your husband is a man of the books looking for an argument, and I'm not the man for him. And so she begs him and begs him, please go meet with my husband, the the judge, and he says, no, you're, again, your husband's a man of the books. So finally, she wins him over, and he goes and he makes an appointment with the judge, and he shows up and to the judge's office, and he walks in and says to the judge essentially this, you're a man of the books looking for arguments. I don't have anything to say to you. Only do me this. If you ever give your life to the Lord, if you ever convert it, I want you to call me. And the judge was happy enough with that meeting. He can get his wife off his back, I guess. And um, so D.L. Moody left, and that was that. Well, the man did call D.L. Moody later because the Lord did grip his heart and he was converted in some time. And Moody asked him, he said, what happened? How did you, you know, you kind of hard-hearted intellectual man ever come to know Jesus? He said, well, my wife was at a prayer meeting. It usually starts there. My wife was at a prayer meeting and I was home alone. He said, I started to feel uneasy and sick and convicted, we would call it, feel guilty. He said, I tried to go to sleep, but I couldn't sleep. I tossed and turned all the way through the night, just feeling overcome with a sense of guilt. He said, so I got up and I went to the office and I told the secretaries and all the workers, the paralegals, go home, take a, take a vacation. And I shut the door and stayed in my office alone. And he said, the guilt just seemed to increase. I just felt guilty. And he said, I started to pray. Now he was what you would call a Unitarian Universalist, which means that he doesn't really believe in any particular path. He just kind of generic God. So he starts to pray, God, forgive my sins. God, forgive my sins. Forgive me of my guilt. And he said, as he prayed, the guilt only got hotter. He said, I refuse to pray in the name of Jesus because I don't believe in the whole blood and atonement thing. So I just prayed, forgive my guilt. And he said, he just felt 
worse and worse. And finally, in great frustration, he prayed something like, In Jesus Christ's name, forgive my guilt. And he said, immediately, all of the conviction and sorrow lifted. He said, he, he tried to come to this generic, universalist, kind of ambiguous God, but he found no relief from sin there. But finally, as he began to plead with God on the basis of the blood of Jesus, it all lifted in an instant, and he was overcome with joy. We are not in covenant with a nameless, faceless God. We are not a people who worship an ambiguous, kind of laid-back, lackadaisical God creator of the universe. We are in covenant with a very distinct, particular God who has revealed himself to us. A recent survey done by Probe, you probably saw this, it went around. They found that 60% of Christians claiming to be born again between the ages of 18 and 39 believe that Jesus is not the only way to salvation, but you come, could come to God, say, by Buddha or Muhammad or some other faith. First, this is historical, historically what the Christian church called heresy. Okay? Historical heresy. Two, but what this shows is a real lackadaisical posture that's existing within the church. I heard a, a teacher say this recently and it stuck with me, and I think it's actually profound. Um, he was talking about the need for Scripture. And he said that in any relationship, I mean, this happens to, to me, I'm sure it happens to you. You meet someone, right? Like, I, I meet a new family at church, and I may say to the husband, like, hey, let's get coffee sometime and, you know, get to know each other. I'd love to, love to just meet you, hang out, spend time together. And then we go to coffee. I don't know this man at all, you know, other than Adam's house cat was the old saying, right? Just, just a man. And so I go to coffee and I say something like, tell me about yourself. Where are you from? Tell me your story. I'm asking him to self-reveal. He has the responsibility to tell me who he is. I don't say, okay, Adam's house cat, you look like you're roughly 45 years old. You have a northern accent, must be from Philadelphia. I think you might be in finances and you like hamburgers and tacos. Right? Like I don't get to just make up who I think he is. I don't get to tell him his story. I don't have that right to define an individual who I know nothing of. That individual is responsible to self-define, to self-reveal. And as we come to relationship with God, we don't get to define God for God. He self-reveals in the scripture. He tells me who he is, what his likes are, what his wants are. He tells me his story. I don't tell him his story. He tells me, and this is why revelation matters. What, what has God told us through Revelation? He has told us, one, that He's the holy God of the universe. God has revealed to us very plainly that He hates sin. He is not a God who celebrates evil. He is frustrated with wickedness. He despises iniquity. He will not celebrate rebellion. He is a holy God who hates evil, too. He has revealed to us that He's a just judge of the universe. Right? And so... In our justice system, if I go to court because I murdered my neighbor and then I try to woo the judge and the judge, the judge can't say like, oh, I kind of like this kid, right? Like he, he likes the things that I like. We're kind of similar. Pardoned. Right? Like that's wicked. Justice demands, imagine this, justice. So the holy, just God of the universe reveals himself to us through the scriptures. And then he says, I am a God of mercy, but I will not be a God who lacks justice. And so there is one way that you can come to me. It's on the basis of the blood of an innocent victim. He showed us that in the garden, right? When Adam and Eve are clothed with animal skin. Where do you think they got the animal skin? From a dead animal. 
He shows us that through Passover, right? Wherever there's a blood of the lamb on a doorpost, I will pass over your sins on the basis of the blood of an innocent victim. All along, those things were foreshadowing and pointing to the ultimate innocent victim, who was Jesus Christ himself. God said, if there was an innocent individual, I would allow him to take your place. I would allow him to bear your guilt. And in that way, I can make a path for you to come into relationship with me. But that's the only way you'll come into relationship with me as a holy and just God is to have your sins placed upon the back of an innocent individual. And then God says, by the way, none of you are innocent. And so I'll have to do that myself. So the second person of the Trinity comes, Jesus. He lives perfectly spotless for the entirety of his life. And he dies the death of a a cruel and harsh, violent death of a sinful man in our place. So now God says, I have self-revealed to you. I am the holy, omnipotent, omniscient God of the universe. You understand what omniscience means, right? He knows your thoughts before they're on your lips. He's seen all of your, he's heard all of your private, wicked thoughts. Your bitterness, your lust, he's seen it, he's known it, and he must judge it unless you come to him on the basis of substitution, on the basis of the blood of Christ Jesus. So modern young folks say, you may come to God through Buddha, or you may come to God through Muhammad, but the scripture God has revealed Jesus said this, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. You cannot come to the Father unless you come through me. You cannot come to the holy, just God of the universe without atonement. He has provided for you so that you can be in relationship with this particular God. He is not ambiguous. He is not characterless. He is not attributeless. We know his attributes. Why? Because he told us. He has revealed himself to us. So in Acts chapter 19, you remember some Jewish exorcists come to a demon-possessed man and they try to drive out the demon and they say, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches. Do you remember the demon? Scripture says the demon stripped them naked, kicked their butts, and sent them on their way. I, I, I think of it this way. Uh, you know when a teenager goes to buy a beer with a fake ID and you say, that ain't you. In the spirit realm, it's the same. Um, when I say in the name of Jesus, that's not an encampment or some magic spell that drives demons out. I am appealing to my covenant with a particular person. It's like, it's like the fact that my wife has access to my bank account. You can't have access to my bank account. She sure well knows she has access to that bank account. Somebody put that girl in Financial Peace University. Okay. So if you try to access my bank account... The banker said, nah. But if my wife comes to access my bank account, because of the covenant, she has access. But that's what it means to be in covenant with a particular individual, right? I'm married to my wife. I know her name. I know her character. We have an agreement, a partnership. We share all things. I am not married to some ambiguous individual who may or may not be, who may like things or may not like things that I just kind of hope. And that's not covenant. And that's never what God revealed. As we turn to Joshua chapter 5, we find Israel, they've crossed the Jordan, they're getting ready to go to the walls of Jericho, and God says, stop, every male must be circumcised, because you must covenant yourselves to me. 
The strength of Israel will not be her military might, her military strategy, her weapons. The strength of Israel will be covenant with God. Not covenant with Melech, not covenant with Baal, not covenant with any other demonic principality. They will have covenant with Yahweh, a particular God with particular attributes, with particular power. And when they face the walls of Jericho, they will not appeal to Baal. They will rest in the omnipotence of Yahweh. And God calls us to the same kind of covenant. As Christians, we are in covenant with Yahweh on the basis of Jesus Christ's blood and Jesus Christ's blood alone. And any individual who claims to have a hold of God without coming through Christ is a liar. Plainly. Let's read Joshua chapter 5. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war who had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt, um, they had died in the wilderness. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who had come out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom we raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Quickly, let's think about where we've been, and then we'll kind of project where we're going. Remember that Joshua 1 introduces the fact that Moses has passed away at the conclusion of Deuteronomy. The prophet Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land because he participated in the sin of Israel, but he was allowed to climb Mount Nebo and see the promised land, and there he passed away. At the passing of Moses, Joshua, Moses' assistant, rises to leadership and God transfers Moses' anointing and mantle onto the life of Joshua. And now Joshua will lead Israel into the promised land because all the generation who left Egypt, who sinned, they've now passed away. And so we studied that transition of power, and then we talked about the fact that in this period, this this season, the Jordan River was flooded, there was water everywhere, and there was no way that Israel was going to cross the Jordan River to go into Canaan to face Jericho. And so they're faced with that conundrum. What happens next is God parts the Jordan River in the same way that he parted the Red Sea. There was no way for Israel to get out of Egypt lest the waters be parted. There was no way for Israel to come into the promised land unless the waters be parted. And God says to Israel, I'm the God who brought you out and I'm the God who bring you in. I'm the God of your fathers and I'll be the God of your children. So God parts the Jordan River. 
The people walk across the Jordan River on dry land. In chapter 4, remember, we, we studied God saying to Israel, Now go get 12 stones out of the river and set up a memorial because it's going to matter that you remember. So now when Israel's across the Jordan River and, and, and essentially getting ready for Jericho's walls, God begins to talk to them about worship. First, you must remember. You must keep the testimony. You make sure your children know how I parted the Red Sea and how I parted the Jordan River. You make sure your children know that I'm the God of your fathers and I'll be the God of their children. You make sure your children have heard the story. One, remember. Two, as we turn to chapter five, God still is saying, you're not going to Jericho yet. We need to talk about worship. Now, I'm asking you to revisit the covenant of circumcision. All the men must be circumcised. Now, as we turn to that theme, where God's saying, look, you're ready for Jericho. I I understand that you're ready to go take the walls. I am telling you, I want you to stop. I want every man of your camp to be circumcised. There are some very, very obvious things we need to think about here. First, the scripture tells us at the beginning of our chapter that the kings of the Amorites and all the kings of the Canaanites we're scared. Why? Because it's the time of year when the Jordan's flooding. And so they've heard that Israel is coming. They suspect that this little camp of people may come and try to overthrow them. But it's the season of flooding. There's no way they're getting across the Jordan River. Right? And so the Jordan has created a natural barrier, at least for some time. Right? They'll have to wait till the season changes. We've got time to prepare. We've got time to think. We've got the Jordan River. But God parts the Jordan River. And then they go, oh no. Not only have they got across the Jordan, but they got across the Jordan by supernatural power. We're in trouble. And so the scripture says that the the heart of the men in the land of Canaan, their hearts begin to melt with fear. Now, so what we know is that the Canaanites are unprepared. One, that's a great time to attack. And they're scared. Two, that's a great time to attack. So to the natural mind... Israel would be saying, all right, we've got them on their heels. They're not prepared. Charge. But God says, I am not asking you to operate by the wisdom of your natural mind. I'm asking you to operate by spiritual covenant. And so what we're going to do is we're going to stop and all the men are going to be circumcised. One, they lose the element of surprise. Two, they're losing the, the opportunity to capitalize on fear. Three, there's a very, very obvious problem that's being created here. Um, let me remind you of Genesis chapter 32 quickly. Remember the story of Dinah. She was Jacob's daughter who was raped. Shechem was the man who raped her. And after raping Jacob's daughter, he asked his father, Hamer, to go to Jacob and to ask Jacob if he could have Dinah as his wife. Now, as Hamer comes to Jacob and the sons of Israel, and they they ask, can we have Dinah to be my son's wife? And then he says this, we'll give you our daughters, you give us your daughters, we'll share our livestock, we'll become one people, and we'll prosper together. You give us your daughters, we'll intermarry, we'll prosper, we'll have an economy, let's do this. And the sons of Jacob say to Hamer, yes, let's do that. You come, give us your daughters, we'll give you our daughters, we'll share, we'll create a prosperous economy. One problem. God will not allow us to be in relationship with any men who are not circumcised. If you'll go back and make sure all the men of your city are circumcised, then we will enter into covenant with you. 
So Hamer and Shechem say, that sounds like a fair enough deal. Let's do it. And so the men go back and all the men of that city are circumcised. The scripture says, but on the third day, while the men of that city were still in pain from the process of circumcision, Levi and Simeon, two sons of Jacob, they sweep down on the city and they murder all of the men and take back Dinah, their sister, and plunder the city. So the two sons of Jacob, particularly Simeon and Levi, the other sons plunder the city, they have deceived their enemies by using circumcision as a tactic of war. So on day three, the men were still down and not able to defend themselves. They were still down recovering. What does that tell us about Israel crossing the Jordan River, getting ready to face battle? They've got at least a three-day recovery period. The last thing we should be doing now, as there are kings and cities who know we're here and know that we're getting ready to face off, the last thing we should be doing, Joshua, is circumcision. We should have done that on the other side of the Jordan River. Or by God, let's do it when we're done. Jericho has walls to protect her. Israel is just encamped on a plain. And now for at least three days, all of their men are going to be down. You would imagine as men in the room that if we were in that situation, we would like have a watch system, right? Like you're sleeping four hours, I'll sleep four hours. We have to make sure no one comes and sneaks in our camp at night. Now you're just going to put all the men down for three days? God is asking Israel to value her covenant and her worship even beyond the standards of her natural wisdom. To lay, to lay herself out in the plains while enemies are drooling at the mouth, ready to attack her, and to posture herself in a place of vulnerability. Right? This isn't wise to the natural mind, but God is saying, even in your vulnerable place, when you are weak, I will be your tower of refuge. In your weakness, I will shelter you. I am the shepherd who lays awake all night. And any who come out to attack you, I beat off with the rod of my hand. I am your protector. I am your provider. I am your strength. I am your power. Don't lean on your natural abilities. Trust me fully. God says, we are going to abandon your element of surprise. I am your element of surprise. God says, we are going to abandon your strength and strategy. I am your strength and I am your strategy. Before you march to Jericho, stop and make sure every man participates in covenant towards me. Now quickly, let's, let's just discuss the covenant of circumcision. Genesis chapter 17, verse 4 through 10. God is speaking to Abraham, Abram here. He says this, behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep, between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So God changes Abram's name to Abraham, and he says this, 
I am making a covenant to you today. Not only to you, but to your offspring and to their offspring. I am giving you the land and to all those who participated in the covenant through circumcision, I will be their God and they will be my people. Again, not to overemphasize, but to these particular people in this particular point of history, they have one God. They don't worship Baal, right? The rest of the nations are polytheistic. Pantheon of gods. Pick a god for a particular season, right? You got, you got a fertility issue, here's your god. You need rain, here's your god. God says to Israel, no, you covenant with me. And me and you. Me and your children. No one else. You serve Yahweh and Yahweh alone. No other god is to have your affections. Just me. Particular god. Not a generic, universalist, whoever. Just me. This sign of covenant, a personal shedding of blood, a personal participation in relationship with God. It's to be a natural, physical distinction between Israel and all other peoples. To say, I am your God and you are my people. I am your provision. I am your strength. I am your shelter. I'll help you when you need rain. I'll help you when you have fertility issues. I'll handle all of your needs and all of your wants. I am the omnipotent God of the universe. You are mine and I am yours. Unique, covenantal relationship. No one else. Again, I am not married to my wife and some other ten random women that I don't know much about. One woman. She alone has access to my bank account. Praise God. <laughs> right? Then in Deuteronomy, when Moses is preparing for his death. Remember, think again that Deuteronomy means second law. So before Moses dies, he gives the law again to Israel. He's telling Israel, I'm dying. You need to make sure you obey this law. And so the closing of Moses' life, he calls Israel to receive certain blessings and certain curses that will come upon them. When they serve God, they'll be blessed. When they deny God, they'll be cursed. And this is what Moses says in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 30. And when all these things, I'm reading verses 1 through 6. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations, where the Lord your God has driven you, And return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart, with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, that you may live. So what God just said, you need to think Babylonian captivity. God said that when you are cursed and you are driven from this land that I gave to your fathers and you find yourself scattered throughout the nations, if you will repent and turn to me with all of your heart, then I will restore you to the land of your fathers. I will make you prosperous even beyond their prosperity. And my spirit will circumcise your heart so that you will love me with all of your heart and with all of your soul. So God, Moses is literally prophesying what will take place if Israel rebels, which did take place in the Babylonian captivity, that if they turn from God, they will be spread out to the world. But if they repent, 
God would bring them back to the land and circumcise their heart. Now, the prophets will say stuff like this. Um, You've set up idols in your heart. So idolatry, right? Like when you think of idol worship, they would set up a physical idol. But the prophets say, it's not that you set up an idol in the physical, but you set up an idol in your heart. And here God says, when you return to me and repent, I will cut away all the flesh from you. Everything in your heart that hinders your love for me, my spirit will cut it away. I will circumcise your heart. And so what we learn from circumcision from a fully biblical perspective is that not only is circumcision a natural, physical distinction between Israel and the nations, but circumcision is a spiritual posture where everything in your heart that dishonors to God is cut away and thrown to the wayside and all that's left is holy, burning affection and desire for Yahweh and Yahweh alone. When God says, so that you will love me with all of your heart, he's saying, so that you will love me and not those idols, not those false gods, not those other deities that promise some kind of blessing. And so, when we hear what God is saying here, We need to make sure that we are covenanted to God in our hearts and God alone. To Yahweh and Yahweh alone. Hear me for 30 seconds. The Allah of Islam is not my God. He is some kind of wicked principality from my perspective. The God that promotes the slaughter of the unborn is not my God. The God that promotes prosperity and open sexuality... Buddha is not my teacher. I have one God. I worship God in Jesus Christ's name. I am covenanted to him and to him alone. Every other God must bow and be cast aside. I will not serve you. I serve one God, one being, one person. And I don't get to choose and pick and manipulate to try to, dis- to, try to create who he is. He's told me who he is. I don't get to say, all right, murder sounds good to me, right? No, he has revealed, he has self-revealed. I'm in relationship with him. So I said to the church earlier, if your concepts of healthcare involve murder, you've got a problem with God. You don't have a problem with me. If you say it's offensive, Caleb, for you to say that you don't serve Allah, would I say, well, I'm offended by Muhammad's practices and the way that he treated young women. It's offensive to my God the way that Islam in its historical perspective dishonors and treats women. It's offensive to the God who created man and woman in his image. I am in covenant in relationship in union with a particular God with particular values. And when his values and his standards when his character is spit on because of that covenant I am required to stand with him on the basis of the blood of Christ Jesus. Obviously, it's not my hope to be offensive to any people. But I must stand up when people are offensive to my God. And I cannot embrace the values of my culture when they spit in the face of the values of the God I'm covenanted to. And you say, one day that's going to land you in prison. I'm sure it will. But I belong to Him fully and totally. My heart is surrendered to this God and no other. And I cannot bow. That is what God is asking for from Israel here. You belong to me. I am the God of your fathers. I am the God who promised Abraham this land. 
I am the God who established Isaac. I am the God who changed Jacob's name to Israel and said that he would be blessed. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. And I am the God who brought you across the Jordan. You belong to me. And he says the same to the church. I am the God who washed you in the blood of Jesus. I am the God who liberated you from your sin. I am the king who set you free and gave you freedom indeed. You belong to me. So I am offended when any other religious system attempts to oppress the free sons and daughters of Christ Jesus. I am free in Christ. So before God allows Israel to march toward the walls of Jericho, he says, first, let's make sure this is right. I am your God and you are my people. Stop. I understand that this makes you feel vulnerable. I understand that you're not marching on in your natural strength and wisdom. I understand that this feels like an hour of weakness to put yourself in a place of vulnerability. But in your weakness, I will show myself strong. Our strength, church, is in our belonging. And again, you guys know me. It is not my heart to spit on anyone or to belittle anyone. But I will not back down from my belonging. And you better make sure you belong to Christ Jesus. We can move from project to project, from battle to battle. We can organize and mobilize and we can pat each other on the button and encourage each other. But all of our energy and effort is good for nothing unless we are covenanted with the God of Scripture through the blood of Christ Jesus. And Him alone. Him alone. Finally, God says, and, and when you circumcise, when you reestablish the covenant between me and you and your children, then I will roll away your reproach. I will roll away the reproach of Egypt. That's what the word Gilgal means. Where they're camped, it means to roll away. So God says to Israel here, you have been ashamed. You have been embarrassed. Think Israel left Egypt and now they've been wandering in the wilderness for some 40 years. And people will say of Israel, her God was able to bring her out, but not able to bring her in. And did you hear of Israel in the wilderness? The earth broke and swallowed up some of their men, Korah and his rebellion. Did you hear of those people in Israel? They've, they've been attacked by serpents and now they're dying left and right. Did you hear of those people of Israel? They're hot and tired and just circling around because their God will not give them victory. And God says, no longer you live under reproach as you re-covenant yourself to me I roll it away and some of us here today are filled with shame and guilt and you say Caleb you don't know my reputation you don't know my sorrow you don't know my sin you don't know my sexual sin you don't know my rebellion and God says covenant yourself to me today circumcise the flesh of your heart and I'll roll away your reproach I'll turn over the leaf it'll be a new season a new day all God asks is that you covenant yourself to him and to him alone Become mine, fully mine. God says the season of grumbling, the season of frustration, the season of judgment, it's done. As you recovenant yourselves today, the reproach is gone. So, in conclusion, what do we learn today? Primarily, that God is asking Israel to be His and fully His and no one else's. And again, we're not talking about an ambiguous God who he may or may not have been a creator, of, but we're talking about a very particular God who has self-revealed. Do you understand what I mean by that? Self, he has told us who, he sat down with Israel and said, let me tell you about me. And gave her a book so she wouldn't forget. This is who I am. 
And again, we as a people, we don't serve any other God. I don't serve any other God. I will not belong to any other idol. I will not bow my knee to Allah of Islam. I will not bow my knee to any Eastern religion. I belong to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. And you can take my head on that. But I will not cave to any. Because he is the God who liberated me from my depression. He is the God who washed me of my guilt. He is the God who picked me up out of the miry clay and placed my feet upon a rock. He is a God who has been faithful to me day in and day out. I cannot deny him. To participate in our cultural polytheism that says, you love who you want and you love who you want and we'll all just get along. To participate in that kind of false religion is to deny our covenant. And I will not. He has revealed himself as the holy creator of the universe who is the just judge of all people. And he has said there is one way to have forgiveness of your iniquity. There is one way to escape the coming judgment. And it is this, to be washed by the blood of Christ Jesus. To put on your doorpost the blood of the Lamb. There is one way to know that your sins are forgiven. There is one way that I will pardon your guilt. To come to me through the person of Christ Jesus. Go ahead and stand to your feet. Altar team, if you get in place. Worship team, you can come. If you're here this morning and you've never truly covenanted yourself to God, you've never given your life fully to Him, maybe you've participated in some kind of modern Christianity that was kind of laid back and on the side, you participated in some kind of Eastern religion and you felt like you had some liberty there, but you're, you're just kind of in this cycle of feeling guilty and wondering what the future holds. I'm telling you today that the God of Scripture reveals Himself as Yahweh, and says to you that you can have total forgiveness and abundant life and no real peace and joy that all of your guilt can be washed away on one basis that you come to him by the blood of Christ you could say to me Caleb I've committed adultery last week man and I would say to you you don't earn forgiveness you receive it by bowing your knee to Christ he earned salvation on your behalf. So you don't have to leave here this morning confused. You don't have to leave here this morning wondering who's your God. You don't have to leave here wondering what eternity holds for you. You don't have to leave here bound in guilt and shame. He will roll away your reproach. If you'd open your hands and ask him to be Lord, he would covenant with you in such a way to say that he will be your God for all eternity and you'll be a son or daughter forever fully forgiven, fully free if that's you this morning, we're going to open up the altars we would love for you to come down and pray with one of our altar ministers and again, you can leave here today if you'll surrender your heart sure that you belong to a God who loves you perfectly and fully because of Christ two, we believe that part of the covenant between God and his people is that he's their provider and provision and so we felt as we prayed that there are people struggling with a few different sicknesses that God wants to heal today. If you're dealing with an immune system issue, fibromyalgia, left ear infection, 
If any of those things are haunting you, we believe God's here to heal you. Any other issue that you'd like to receive prayer for, we would love to pray, believing that your covenanted God is your healer. Three, if you're struggling with any kind of oppression, night terrors, you can't sleep, your emotional anxiety and fear, if you feel like there's demonic manipulation in your life, we believe the Holy Spirit's in the room and ready to cast that off of you. If that's you, I want to ask you to come today and receive prayer. So the altars are officially open. If you need Christ or healing or deliverance, I want you to come now. I don't want you to look around. I don't want you to hesitate. I don't want you to leave here without receiving prayer. Set the worship for us while the altars open up.